So welcome to the coronavirus special episode of Spotlight, a PEI media podcast that looks into the very latest in private markets investing. I am Adam Lay, news editor at Private Equity International, and uh, today we are coming to you remotely from different parts of the world because our various governments have told us that we need to stay away from the office amid the coronavirus crisis. So in various parts of the UK, we have uh, Toby Mitchell, senior editor at Private Equity International. Toby. Hello. Great. Hello. Uh, In the UK as well, we have Andy Thompson, Senior Editor at Private Debt Investor. Hello. Hi, Andy. Uh, In New York, for a North American view, we have America's Editor, Isabel Markham. Hello. Back to the UK as well, we have Bruno Alves, Senior Editor at Infrastructure Investor. Hello. And also in the UK, we have Jonathan Brass, Senior Editor at Private Equity Real Estate. Hello. And I'm Adam Lay coming to you from Paris. So these are pretty unprecedented times, uh, highly unusual times. Luckily for private markets, it's an asset class that is known for its long-term outlook. But how exactly the private markets are are being impacted by the COVID-19 crisis, I think a lot of people don't know. But fortunately, we've had various teams around the world looking into that on behalf of readers and our clients over the last few weeks. So let's let's jump right in. We've got different asset classes to to talk about. Toby, there in London. Do you want to tell us about the most interesting story or the biggest story that's happened in private equity related to COVID-19 over the last couple of weeks? Sure. Well, I mean, this might be a story that's beyond just private equity, and I'd be interested to hear from the asset, other asset class reporters on that. But obviously, I mean, key to us and indeed key to private equity is fundraising. How and if private equity firms can actually raise capital when they can't meet each other face to face. It's always been said that this is a people business. An investor would never sign a 50 or 100 million dollar commitment without meeting the person they're they're handing it over to around the table and looking them in the eye. So is it actually possible to raise a fund without face-to-face contact? And we're hearing it seems it probably is. I mean, we had Tikahau Capital, so PE and private debt manager this morning announcing the results saying they've done their investment and I think operational due diligence with a US investment consultant entirely remotely and it seems to be possible. And we're just hearing that from other sources in the market that actually, yes, business is happening fundraising is happening it's happening slowly uh, because like in, in many parts of the world people are juggling not only working remotely but working with children running around all the time as well and then we're hearing that people if you've got fundraising momentum going then that's actually not not slowing down in fact some people with good momentum are actually using this as a, a reason to say okay look we're bringing forward the first close just to make sure that they get it in the bag as it were and then i guess one other point on fundraising would be that for private equity specifically, we shouldn't be surprised if the first half figures for this year actually look quite enormous or in line with last year's kind of normality. Just because commitments are already mapped out, processes are already ongoing, and there's a couple of very big managers out there in the, in the market at the moment raising very big funds, um, CBC, EQT. It's difficult to imagine that they won't raise everything they set out to raise. So, so H1 figures for fundraising for private equity are probably going to sort of stay on track, but it's really going to be from H2 that we're going to see a big dip. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's when the, the drought will begin, certainly looking at headline numbers, because it's the new processes that aren't getting started at the moment. And, and what about for first-time funds? Should, should first-time managers, you know, from, from what you're hearing, are they going to have an, an even tougher time amid the crisis? Yeah, I mean, it's never easy to raise a first-time fund, is what we hear all the time. But I think the same applies in terms of if they've 
begun their processes and certainly they've had face-to-face meetings already and they're just going through further due diligence then those processes are still on track but yeah I think someone I can't remember what the exact quote was but someone told us that it'd be absolutely nuts to launch a process right now so I guess you'll probably see as the year develops more spin outs or emerging managers doing deal by deal fundraising so, so obviously the, the fundraising of figures uh, is something that affects all asset classes in, in private markets. Andy Thompson from Private Debt Investor, you know, private debt fundraising has been a big story over the last couple of years uh, with a boom in, in that space. Um, keen to hear what's, what's going on in terms of private debt and, and if you're hearing the same things in terms of private debt fundraising uh, to Toby was hearing about private equity. Yeah, I think probably quite a similar story. One, one of the interesting things with private debt was that it peaked a couple of years ago, really. 2017 was sort of the peak of private debt fundraising. Uh, I think that was a point in time where everything sort of came together for private debt. It was fashionable as an asset class. Um, A lot of new allocations were being uh, carved out by uh, LPs and fundraising was up around sort of $250 billion plus. Since then, it's actually been coming down quite significantly anyway. Um, I mean, obviously, you have to be wary about just looking at 12-month periods of, of time. They don't necessarily tell you very much. but uh, And certainly, if you were to aggregate the last few years, then it would be the sort of most prolific period of fundraising that private debt has had. Nonetheless, in 2018 and 2019, particularly last year, fundraising was coming off quite a lot, I think, as as people sort of paused for breath, you know, they had made those initial allocations. And, um, you know, I think there was a little bit more of a sense that that the market was maybe presenting some some issues, particularly around deal structuring, increased competition, etc. So I think LPs were starting to get a little bit more sceptical anyway last year. Um, At the beginning of this year, we did actually see some pickup, I think. There was some overhang from last year with some fairly sizable funds that were in the market towards the end of last year that managed to get a close sort of around January, February time. But I I suspect from now on, you'll see very much the similar kind of of, of trend that Tobias described. Um, I can't see the second half of this year being anything other than subdued. Um, And so, Andy, what's been the biggest kind of impact or the biggest story or most interesting thing that you've seen in, in the private debt market over the last two weeks? I think the most interesting conversation I had was yesterday, I spoke with Sabrina Fox, who runs the European Leveraged Finance Association, and uh, she'd actually come down with what what sounded like coronavirus. So she'd been just taking the last day or two just to try and acquaint herself with the the new normal. So her focus is probably mainly on the, the syndicated market, which is the larger end for us. So that doesn't really cover the bulk of our activity. But what you see is that a lot of the things that are happening at that higher end of the market, the syndicated market, tend to filter down to the sort of more mainstream private debt market. And what you've seen in that syndicated market is um, and what we've reported on in private debt investor in recent times has been the way it's moved strongly towards a borrower's market. And that's bad news for lenders. So in all sorts of ways, whether that's the increase in covenant light loans, whether it's proliferation of EBITDA ad backs or developments around restricted payments that we're covering in our uh, cover story and our April issue. In all sorts of ways, it's it's become a, a, a borrower's market to the detriment of lenders. And I think from that conversation yesterday, my sense is that that borrower's market is very much at an end now. And, uh, you know, the, the, the focus from now on 
uh, in many cases. And of course, you know, it's, it's dangerous to talk in, in too uniform a way because there will be exceptions to the rule. But generally speaking, there's going to be a lot of sectors that are going to get, be very badly hit. Um, looks like we're clearly heading into a recession. So I think lenders are going to be looking very closely now at the loan documentation um, and what they're going to become increasingly aware of or what they're going to be reminding themselves of is how much they've actually given away to, to deal sponsors, which in terms of flexibility to turn companies around. Uh, and that's not a bad thing if, if the private equity firms live up to their billing and actually demonstrate the work, work out expertise that they claim to have. Nonetheless, you know, it, it, there is a big loss of control on the part of the lenders. What I was hearing from Sabrina was that when the market, which is currently effectively frozen, when it re-emerges um, later on this year, probably around July, August, uh, no issuance in her view is, is, is going to get away without terms that are significantly stacked more in favour of lenders than they have been for a very long time. Wow. So the, the tables have really turned. Um, the market is frozen. Uh, and when it does return, the conditions are going to be significantly changed, at least in the short and medium term. I think so. I mean, the caveat to that, as I say, is that this is mostly about the broadly syndicated market where private debt firms are increasingly playing. In, in the mainstream private debt market, you, are, you have been seeing a lot of the same things filtering down. Probably, though, if you went down to the sort of lower mid-market end, you would find that there's a lot more covenant protection there and, and, and not as much, you know, sort of flexibility has, has been sacrificed. OK, turning to, to Isabel Markham uh, in New York, you had a story this week about the denominator effect in terms of sort of public market allocations versus private markets. Uh, do, you, do you want to talk us through that? Yes, absolutely. So like most people, we've all been watching the public markets and the just roller coaster that's going on there. They're down pretty significantly. And as soon as that happens, thoughts in the private markets turn to the denominator effect. So this is where we see the illiquid part of the portfolio suddenly mushroom to, to a huge size because those public markets portfolios have shrunk so much. This is you know, not a great position for LPs to be in. You know, we saw this in the global financial crisis, and that was really where we saw a lot of people start to try and offload as much as they could from their illiquid portfolio on the secondaries market, often selling at quite a deep discount. So yes, we've seen this before, so LPs should be anticipating it. Given the time lag of the results that are given in private equity, they're about six months lagged. So at the end of this quarter, we will see a denominator effect unless we have a significant recovery in public markets before that. What LPs choose to do about this, it really depends on the type of investor. Um, so perhaps we, we're hearing that if you're a large sovereign wealth fund, you know, you might just keep allocating through this. It doesn't really matter to you what the balance of your portfolio is. You don't really have any rules around that. So, um, you know, if you can keep investing in illiquids, now is actually a great time to be doing it. Everyone's saying, you know, the funds that are being raised now, these could be some great vintages. So if you want to just keep going, that is a great strategy. But not everybody has that kind of flexibility. Some LPs we're hearing just have a very rigid structure where they just cannot exceed certain allocations to illiquids. So they are going to be potentially freezing their program to making new commitments. And if this really persists, then they will be forced to sell some of their positions. Um, there are others that operate within a range, so they have more flexibility to kind of ride this out a little bit. Um, but then there's also just some who don't 
like being in this new riskier environment. So they're just going to feel uncomfortable. Maybe they're going to pause everything, just see where everything shakes out. Um, you know, is this going to be a three month situation or is this going to, you know, stretch out until the end of the year that when they're really going to have to start to take some decisive action. On the other side of this, we're hearing that some family offices and high net worth individuals um, have levered their portfolios. So they're in a tricky spot now. They're going to be forced to liquidate some of their liquid assets um, to get back to an even keel, which is just going to make this denominator effect even broader. The illiquids part of the portfolio is going to look massive. And then we've also got pensions who have to think about being adequately funded. We hear from one source that in this situation, the first things to go are obviously the public, public equities that are easier to liquidate. Then it's going to be the credit holdings. But if this continues, it will go into the private markets portfolios. So I think for most LPs, it's taking a breath right now before taking any sort of decisive action because it you know, you don't want to be a forced seller if you can possibly help it, but the time may come depending on how long this lasts. So potentially a, a whole lot of distressed sellers um, at some point in the not too distant future and, and potentially selling at, uh, at large discounts to net asset value. Potentially, yes. Bruno Alves uh, in London. For infrastructure, I mean, infrastructure is an asset class that typically is known for its lower risk but lower returns. Is infrastructure seen as kind of a, a safer asset class in these uncertain times? Well, I think one thing you're going to see is actually the resiliency uh, of the asset class uh, be stress tested uh, during this period. And you're right, infrastructure does have uh, that perception. But at the same time, if you think about certain sectors in, in particular, and I'll use the example of airports, which is something that you know you guys all use and, and you can see how they're being affected. So you have some JDP-linked assets with airports at the forefront being hit very, very hard from what is essentially this, this sharp, uh, abrupt shock uh, with passenger uh, traffic falling off a cliff and, you know, countries going on lockdown, et cetera, et cetera. And so what traditionally happens in uh, crises is that JDP-linked assets, they, they tend to bounce back relatively quickly once the crisis is over. And just, um, uh, sorry to interrupt, Bruno, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, JDP-linked assets refers to? Oh, it's, it's just so anything that's uh, linked to the wider economy, so toll roads, okay. uh, airports, et cetera. Uh, and you have infrastructure assets which are more decoupled from, you know, JDP growth. That's that's what I meant by that. And so essentially, you know, when these crises are over, these assets tend to bounce back relatively quickly. What I think is interesting, and it's it's what's going to be uh, tested with this crisis, because if we don't know how long it's going to last and how abrupt the shock is. Uh, is that you will see uh, risk perception around certain sectors potentially uh, be reshaped. And so if I come back to airports, you are having the example here in the UK where a lot of airports are already asking for, for government help to just keep going. And they warn that they will close in the next few weeks if they, if they don't get that assistance. So you have a near-term shock that will require some intervention to, to stabilize these assets. Uh, and then you have to wonder, okay, after this, will they stabilize and go back to what they were before? Because that's kind of what's happened in previous crises. Now, if you think about this crisis, though, we don't know how long we're going to be working from home. We expect it's a few months, but you know, we'll, we'll see how that pans out. People are essentially reshaping some habits. I mean, we've all heard anecdotal evidence from GPs, for example, saying 
maybe they won't travel so much last uh, next year because video conferencing works great, etc. So then you have to think about, okay, will travel patterns, will they come back and be exactly as they were? And you can think about with climate change in the background, you know, this picture that we had of airports where traffic was always going up, is this going to continue to be this way? So it's possible that there's going to be a reevaluation about the riskiness of these assets. Also, I don't think many airport buyers in the past would necessarily think about pandemic risk and what that would do to their assets. But I can guarantee you they're going to be thinking about that now. Uh, so it's going to be, and I think length is the, 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 the determinant here about impact. If we all, you know, if this lasts a couple of months and everything goes back to business as usual, then I think you can expect, you know, patterns to resume if this lasts longer or we enter a period of intermittent travel, say you can travel in the summer, but then when winter comes, you've got restrictions again, it may really change the dynamic. So that's one interesting thing we're seeing. But of course, there are other sectors that will, will kind of win from this. Again, we're, we're here doing video conferencing. Uh, broadband is, you know, the importance of broadband, which was already a popular asset class, digital infrastructure. That's just going to be underlined massively uh, after this, this crisis. So I think you will see a bit of a, yeah, you know, some sectors will kind of have their risk reevaluated, but it, it, it should be, turn out to be resilient in the long term. But it's going to be interesting. Certainly is. Um, and on the fundraising front, very briefly, um, I mean, some of the, the largest asset managers, you know, Brookfield raising close to $20 billion feels like just weeks ago. What are the people that you're speaking to telling you about how the fundraising for private uh, infrastructure funds is going to fare? I think it's probably a similar story to what you're seeing across the other asset classes. And essentially, if you are a, a GP with a track record and you're well known and you, you have a fundraising process underway, uh, it's unlikely that's going to be affected uh, much. We uh, broke a story on Stone Peak, uh, a GP who's raising a 10 billion fund. They expect to reach their 7 billion first close at the end of April. And I think they will probably hit that. Uh, if you're a, a first-time fundraiser, though, much like the other asset classes, you're probably not going to be able to, to, to do what you expected to do. So Bruno, I wanted to ask you if we know anything about what a potential government bailout would look like for vital infrastructure like airports, because it could be a potential PR disaster for private capital if they're seen having taken whatever dividends and distributions they might have done so along the way to then be turning to the taxpayer for a, for a bailout for these privately run assets. So I, I think you have some indications, but obviously this will vary, I think, significantly country by country, sector by sector. But if we stick with uh, airports for a moment longer, here in the UK, the trade body, the Airport Operators Association, has uh, written to the government uh, asking for a series of measures to essentially help what will be a lot of private airport operators withstand the crisis. They include a raft of measures. I, I don't know all of them uh, off the top of my head, but I think what you're alluding to is uh, what's also going to be expected uh, of these private operators. And there was an interview uh, yesterday and BBC Radio 4, where the chief executive of this trade body was essentially explaining what UK airports would want from the government to help them survive. And the journalist immediately uh, asked, using uh, Heathrow as an example, 
what they were going to put in of their own money. And obviously the dividends taken out, which amounts to hundreds of millions, if not billions over the past few years, were referenced. So, you know, I started saying that resilience was a theme that we're coming up against. But I think depending on, again, how long this crisis lasts, I think it will test in infrastructure, public-private relationships, probably in a way that they haven't been tested before. Great. So, Jonathan, you, you cover private equity real estate. We're dealing with buildings, uh, with properties. Many people watching this are probably watching this from the comfort of, of their own home because they're having to, to stay away from the office. The, the real estate industry must be taking an absolute pummeling during these times. I think, I think the best way to look at this is um, pretty much the pace of these markets. I mean, real estate, like other hard assets, the valuations of these uh, investments are not as uh, frequently recurring as you would have on a listed exchange, for instance. And so what the, in, in terms of write downs, in terms of a new basing of pricing, people are, are in wait and see mode and, and actually if there was a headline to take from the various outreaches and conversations that my team have been uh, taking part in in the last week, uh, it has been that folks are very much introspective at, the point, at this point in time. They're looking for information. And, and the best place to get that is the assets you already own. I had a conversation with Germany's BVK. A colleague of mine had a conversation with Allianz, also of Germany, the insurer. And, and in both situations, there was a keen sense from them to understand the performance of their existing asset bases. That would, of course, come at the expense of making quick new investment decisions. In the case of BVK, uh, in fact, uh, Reiner Commender, the head of funds there for real estate, told me that they would be unlikely to make any new investment decisions for at least four to six weeks. Uh, spending most of their time kicking the tires of their own assets, speaking to their own portfolio managers to understand implications uh, and impacts from their own tenant bases. Obviously, at this point in time, the incomes of the real estate on people's books is, is of paramount and understanding that, protecting it, figuring out tenant needs is top of the agenda. And that's what they're up to right now. In terms of new acquisitions, it's on the back burner for many. I'll bring in the, the anecdote we got from Allianz this week, which was there will still be conversations about new purchases, new investments, but people are going to have to understand, counterparties will have to understand that due diligence periods are going to be lengthier, particularly as people try to find workarounds to doing business in a remote reality. In the case of Allianz, for instance, uh, we were told that for some deals, the investor is asking for uh, a notable uptick in photography within the buildings to, to show images. If they can't visit these things directly, if they can't visit them in person, then as much uh, remote access, as much remote information as possible is being asked for. So there's still a bit of activity on the investment side, but it's going to slow, undoubtedly. And underwriting is, is absolutely at the fore for many, many people, trying to understand what new underwriting looks like versus old assumptions. Um, will, will be critical. That's going to depend largely on how successful portfolio and asset mm. management exercises are at this point. So certainly there's been a, a pause on deal making, as you're saying. I think one of your team members had a story towards the end of last week about um, a New York based firm uh, active in the d direct uh, secondaries real estate space. So I understand they buy portfolios of, of stakes in, in properties, wholeheartedly putting a, a pause on any investment activity until things become clearer. Yes, I mean, they've listened, they've just raised their money. They're in a small cohort of 
I don't think it's, you could use any other term but lucky managers, really, who have been able to time a final closing, uh, have that squared away just as the virus breaks out. You know? And so they're sitting there with dry powder. Obviously, as prices fall, which they undoubtedly will do, rebase, be, the underwritings will be re-understood. There'll be new assumptions to consider entry points to deals. Uh, this is going to take time. So for these guys too, the only thing they'll be buying right now is time. They will be looking to have due diligence and their communication will be critical, probably more so than before uh, with prospective counterparties. But the chances of you know, wide-scale deployments from the funds that have just closed right now, that seems remote. And I think we're going to see a scenario where, you know, a little bit like the gazelles crossing a river, you know, it's going to take the first two or three, you know, of the migration for everybody to start going back in to redecide pricing and understand what assumptions go into that. It may well start with these uh, private equity-style higher-risk return funds like Madison. Uh, we ran another story this week on TA Realty and there. They're closing. They raised a billion two. Uh, they're also feeling a sense of relief and comfort in the fact they have dry powder. But like everybody else, they are going to have to take an educated view on a repriced market. And we are in the, only the early throws. If you've got uh, asset owners currently kicking the tires of what they already own, for their first clues as to what a new, what new underwriting should look like, you can rest assured that buyers are going to be watching that very keenly. Possibly they'll be doing the same, you know, already kicking the tires of what they own already as well before they, in a, in a way to contribute to their own thinking towards new investments and the pricing they're willing to transact at. And uh, lastly, what have some of the, the largest investors in your industry, so, you know, the Blackstones of this, this world, um, have they come out in the last, uh, you know, a few days and said anything about how the conditions are affecting their investments or, or how they expect their private equity real estate funds to be performing? Well, I think most of us saw that uh, regulatory filing by Blackstone um, in the last fortnight where they already implied there would be an impact on fund-wide performances uh, in light of this. I think that's unavoidable. They didn't go into too much detail as to what that impact could be. So we'll wait and see. I mean, thankfully they're a listed company, so they are very communicative and you know, we, we will be looking at them uh, as will the market. You know, they've got to a certain size now where they are very much a barometer of health in the market. Thankfully for them, they've been able to produce consistently high performances for years now people will look at them as a point of comparison uh, i can imagine you'll you'll see a lot of folks emulating blackstone moves once they're being made great i think we've got it yeah just a few facts and figures, I guess, from, from the secondaries market, which uh, as Isabel was referring to previously, you know, might, might step in and kind of buy up a lot of potential, you know, fund stakes from LPs or even uh, assets on the direct side um, once the kind of smoke has, has cleared. There was a survey from one of the intermediaries released this morning saying that uh, most market participants expect about a 30% drop in deal volume for this year. Just to put that in context, there was about $88 billion traded on the secondaries market last year, and it's been one that's just been growing uh, exponentially for the past 10 years. So uh, a blip is expected for this year. 
Some buyers are expecting a bit of a feast. And in terms of pricing, I mean, in the previous GFC, anecdotally, we heard of some LPs looking to to offload their stakes at 100% discounts to net asset value. In other words, they would lose completely kind of value of that stake. They just wanted to to get the, the fund stake off their books so they didn't have to be liable for the commitments. And a lot of secondaries buyers back then profited from that. So the expectation from the people that we've been speaking to this week is that there will be a bit of a buying frenzy, but not right now because all deals are on hold and people are obviously working from home. Uh, very good to, to get everybody's views from around the world and, and the different asset classes. It's a, a very unusual time and it's our jobs to stay connected to the markets and to speak to people and continue to deliver you insight and, and high quality reporting on, on what's going on in your asset classes. So I'd like to thank all our senior editors for joining us here today. Thank you for your time and to all our listeners, thank you for listening to PEI's Spotlight.